Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. So there was this little boy standing in the back of church one day, and he was staring at a, a display that had been put up by the church. And uh, it was uh, a display of, of, uh, of pictures of men from the congregation, very large congregation, uh, who had served in the military. And uh, unfortunately, sadly, in this case, uh, it was a display of men from the congregation who had died in their service to the military. So this little boy's just looking at these photos and uh, some of the memorabilia that was there from these young men and women who had died in service to their country. And one of the ushers came up and saw the young man, maybe six or seven years old, uh, and, uh, and, and asked him uh, what he thought. And the, the young boy said, well, I'm, to be honest, I, you know, I, I'm not really sure what this is. And uh, so the usher explained to him, well, this is, uh, this is a little place where we can, can honor those who died in the service. And the little boy just stood there kind of looking at it for a little bit. And then after a, a moment of looking at the display, he looked up at the usher and he said, which service was that, the 9 a.m. or the 11 a.m.? <laughs> you know, there's a little kernel of truth in that story, isn't there? Because sometimes when we come to church, we feel like we're going to get slain, don't we? Especially if we're carrying around some shame and some guilt, which we all do carry around because we're sinful. And so there's a little bit of, I love going to church on Sunday morning. It's a a celebration of the forgiveness I have, but yet at the same time, we know we're going to face God's law, don't we? We're going to face those commandments, that mirror that tells us God's demand is that we love him above all things. It tells us that God's command is that we love our neighbor as ourselves, And so we we kind of, quite honestly, walk into church a little bit like this because we know we're going to be confronted, don't we? And deservedly so. And even deservedly so that we should carry around a little bit of guilt and shame when we come to church because it's clear from the Bible, it's clear from God's law that we fall short, isn't it? That we miss the mark. That's the baseline definition of sin, is missing God's mark for us. The mark that he puts up in the Ten Commandments, the two great commandments of the law that I just told you about. And so, because of that, we recognize that we are guilty. And we worry about coming to church where maybe we're going to be among those who are slain. And yet how important it is for us to be willing to be convicted each and every Sunday. Did you know, for example, that it's my goal every Sunday to put the mirror of God's commandments, his law in front of you to convict your heart of sin? You know why that is? Not to leave you there. Not to leave you there. 
but to draw you up to there, to the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness. How horrible would it be if a church took in hurting people and said, it's our goal to to take the knife and twist it further and leave you in pain and shame and guilt. A goal is to convict you, but it is not the final goal. The final goal is to put balm on the wound. The final goal is to to assure you of God's grace and forgiveness and mercy and to give you hope and a new life. To give you power to walk out the church doors and share this amazing message that Jesus came for the sins of the entire world. And this morning I want to reintroduce you. You hear about him a lot at this church, but I want to reintroduce you to a man, a man by the name of the Apostle Paul, who one day was confronted by Jesus Christ himself as he was traveling on a road to Damascus and Jesus himself convicted Paul of missing the mark, of sinning, of going the wrong direction in his life. And I want to read a section that he writes to a young pastor named Timothy that he was mentoring, that he was training. And, uh, and listen to how Paul goes, you know what? I was convicted. But at the same time, praise God, Jesus did not leave me there. So we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Pull out your crosswalk notes. And we're going to begin reading at chapter 1, verse 12. And this is what it says. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Guilt is that pain that we all feel when we know that we've done something wrong. And furthermore, guilt is the actual guilt that we have when we have done something wrong. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, counseling people, meeting people, have people come into church, that guilt is one of the things in our world that changes lives in unbelievable ways by the hurt that it causes. Do we realize how many people in our world are hurting deep down inside 
because of some shame or guilt that they're carrying around. And maybe, maybe that person is not the one sitting next to you. Maybe he or she is you. I learned about how much guilt can, can change the course of a person's life, how much it can affect a person. When I was uh, working a summer job going through college, I worked on the north side of Phoenix for the Madison Elementary School District on their, uh, on their summer yard maintenance program. We'd go around cutting lawns and, and trimming hedges and so on and so forth for the Madison School District. And there was a, a, an, an older man on the crew by the name of Marvin. And after I'd worked there for a little while, I noticed that Marvin never drove, though he had been there for, for years. And though it was, it was uh, amazing, uh, it was considered an amazing privilege to be able to be one of the drivers of the supply trucks. He didn't drive. Not only did he not drive at work, he didn't drive to or from work. He always hitched rides, or he took the bus, or he got a cab. So I began to wonder about that. Why is it that you don't drive? And, and just the question caused tears to well up in his eyes. You see, what had happened many, many years before is that Marv had been drinking, and he struck and killed a young child. And that day, from that day forward, he swore to himself that he would never again get behind the wheel of a car. And he didn't for the rest of his life. That incident literally changed him in so many ways beyond driving. As I began to talk to him, it wasn't just the driving that affected him. But his guilt and the shame that he carried around with him every day, the hurt and the pain, gradually began to twist and turn his whole entire life. It created a divorce. He never remarried. All kinds of things began to change in his life because of that guilt. Guilt is so dangerous and so painful. So I want to talk a little bit about it this morning. Let's start by looking in your crosswalk notes. Do you know that there are men in the Bible that carried around the same kind of guilt and pain that Marvin carried around? The Apostle Paul is one of them. When you read the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, he's talking about how sinful he still is even as a Christ follower. And what does he say? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? David, and you can find so many examples. It's not hard to find examples. David, an amazing and faithful king of the Old Testament, writes in Psalm 51 as he's confessing a sin that he's committed. He says, God, please hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Now, I mentioned earlier that there are two kinds of guilt that we all have to deal with. First of all, there's, there's true guilt or real guilt. That's when I've done something wrong. There's a standard. And in our case as Christ followers, it's God's standard, isn't it? It's Jesus' standard. When, when God set a standard, the commandments, and said, follow these, whenever we don't do that, there is real guilt. We're doing something wrong not only against other human beings, but against God himself. 
So there's real guilt. It's when I've really, truly done something wrong. And then there's perceived guilt. When I feel I've done something wrong. Now here's the interesting thing about perceived guilt. Perceived guilt comes from our consciences, doesn't it? But there's a little bit of a problem with our conscience. Our conscience, too, has been twisted at times by sin and misinformation. And so what can happen in our world is as we get information that's different from God's, sometimes that new information will callous over our conscience and we begin to think that, that things that are wrong in God's eyes aren't really that bad. Or it can go the other way too. We can be educated by someone and be taught that things that God never said anything about, never said, that's wrong. They'll come along, people will say, no, God says that's wrong. They might not have a Bible, they won't have a Bible passage for it. And they'll teach you it's wrong. And so you'll start to feel something is wrong, even in God's eyes, when it's not found here in the Bible. And so here's the next time, the next two fill-ins. Sometimes I don't feel guilty when I should because of this misinformed, misled, sin-bent conscience. Sometimes I don't feel guilty when I should. And sometimes I do feel guilty when I shouldn't. So what do you do about that? When it comes to perceived guilt and real guilt, we kind of deal with them in two different ways. Let's take the perceived guilt first. Perceived guilt is the feeling of guilt that you get. And that comes, as I said before, from your conscience. So here's how you get your feelings in line with God's truth. You educate your conscience. And how do you educate your conscience? This awesome book. And you go to the law. You look at every passage in this book that says, here's what God wants you to do, and here's what God doesn't want you to do. And keep on educating yourself on what does God's law really say? Be Berean Christians. As we heard Phil say just a few minutes ago. Keep on studying this word so that you can know truly from the Bible what God expects of you to do and what he expects of you not to do. And as your conscience gets more and more, as it gets better educated in what God truly says is right and wrong, your feelings will begin to follow God's true will. That's perceived guilt. What about real guilt? What about when you really have done something wrong against God? That's a tough one, isn't it? And it really raises some questions. I put those questions in your, um, in your crosswalk notes. The first question that I think it raises is, will Jesus disqualify me from his love? Because I'm really guilty here. I truly am. I've done something wrong. Will that disqualify me from God's love? You know, there, there was a group of people in the Bible that thought that it would. They were called Pharisees. Put a passage in your crosswalk notes. But the Pharisees and the the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. This is 
complained to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Aren't they disqualified? They're asking. Jesus answered them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Will you circle that word, sinners? How about in your life? You think back to things you've done. Where you bear true guilt. I can, say, I can think of some things. And do you sometimes in the back of your mind just wonder, could God forgive me when I've done that? Could Jesus still love me? Isn't it kind of true that I've done something that Jesus couldn't forgive? And Satan... The devil, he will come at you with that thought that, that, that God is going to disqualify you. And if he can't get you on your own sin, sometimes he'll try to get you on, on a group thing. Do I belong to some sort of group that, that disqualifies me from God's grace and love and mercy? When I was uh, in Africa... It still kind of angers me to this day. There had been some Africans who had had some people come through who had been taught, supposedly from the Bible, that Africans were not qualified to receive God's grace and forgiveness. Why? Because of the color of their skin. How amazing that we can disqualify people on the basis of some, some group or even some collective sin and think, no, you know, if, if they do that, they're sinners and they're beyond God's grace. Take a look at what it says in this next passage, Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that lasts forever, the eternal gospel, to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every, what does it say? Nation. To every tribe. To every language. And every people. Go back, flip your crosswalk notes over. Look at what Paul says. He says, if I wasn't disqualified, how can any of you think that you might possibly be disqualified? I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, he says in verse 12 as he starts out, who gave me strength not only to be forgiven, but he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. He made me an apostle. Me. A person that if anyone deserved to be disqualified for grace, I'm the guy. Look what he says. Even though I was once a blasphemer, I spoke against God. That's what blasphemer means. I was a persecutor. He went around killing Christ followers. 
and a violent man. Actually, the Greek word there means a man full of hubris. You ever heard that word, hubris? means pride and arrogance. I was an arrogant man, Paul says. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. What would that look like today? Paul goes on, as you heard me read earlier, and say he's the chief of sinners. Let me read you about a guy named Scott. Scott had never been to Las Vegas. He was from a city that prided itself on its aesthetic taste. Vegas was a city that had a 54-foot-high casino volcano that erupted every 15 minutes in a man-made lagoon. He had been to restaurants in which snow peas were arranged on a plate like a work of art. Most Vegas eateries had no art, just all-you-can-eat buffet lines. He loved the elegant lines of his display cases and admired fine architecture in public buildings. In the desert, there was Vegas architecture, artificial canals worked by Erzatz gondoliers, an imitation Eiffel Tower, and a 150-foot-tall Statue of Liberty. Scott got off the plane at McCarran Airport and was not inspired. I hated it. I just hated it, he said because it wasn't New York where I was used to. I didn't like any place that wasn't New York. Vegas seemed harsh, sleazy, with everything based on gambling. This is a dump, I thought, a needle desert. But the only person who would have me in my current condition was my mother. So my thinking was, I can't show up on her doorstep when I'm a skeleton like Ken was. I might as well show up now so she can have a couple of years with me before I go. Scott eventually bought a used car and a condo about 15 minutes from the Strip. The condo was on the edge of Vegas' steadily expanding gay district. With its occasionally seedy bars and storefronts, it was far removed from the lovely shops and boutiques of Chelsea and Greenwich Village in New York. But at least Scott didn't feel alone. Scott had been sober since coming down with the AIDS virus and decided that one means of remaining that way was to stay busy. So Scott helped out with children who had AIDS, pitched in at the, gay, at the city's gay and lesbian center, and joined what's known as Gay AA. The burst of activity didn't work. Eight months after he arrived, he resumed life as a binger, this time as a blackout binger. The kind who remembered only bits and pieces of the drinking he did the night before. One night, Scott started binging somewhere downtown near near the north end of the Strip. He remembers finding his way to Las Vegas Boulevard and walking south almost the entire four-mile length of the Strip early in the morning. He passed the former Treasure Island with the pirate ships and its man-made lagoon. He went by Caesars and the majestic Bellagio, where someone after daybreak where sometime after daybreak, man-made geysers would erupt in the middle of an 11-acre lagoon. Scott kept weaving. Past the Aladdin and the MGM Grand and New York, New York, with its roller coaster and Lady Liberty, and he finally approached the southern end of the strip where Excalibur stands with its medieval-style castle parapets, and he passed the Pyramid of the Luxor, 
with its searchlight and the giant sphinx guarding the hotel casino's driveway. And he doesn't remember seeing any of this. He was too stoned. He was just your occasionally, occasional stumbling drunk trying to find a place to flop. I ended up in the lobby of one of those cheap hotels a block or two off the strip. He says, I didn't have a dime, no wallet, no keys, no coins, and I'm trying to persuade the clerk at the desk to let me use his phone to call my mother. I must have been a little incoherent. I can remember the guy at the desk looking at me like, oh, here's another one. But he must have let me call, though, because I remember talking to my mother. She and my stepfather came down, put me in their car, and put me to bed at their place. Then at one point she came in and she said, I'm not going to put up with the same thing from you that I put up with from your father. One afternoon, after leaving his mom's house, he left a gay AA meeting, went straight to a bar and ordered a drink. He was thinking, I've just been to AA, how can I do this? Then he ordered another. The bar was in a ramshackle area of Vegas, not far from the Stratosphere and Frontier Street. I ended up meeting this street person there, Scott recalls. He was an IV user, the kind of guy who works the bar, preying on drunks like I used to be. We started talking, had some drinks, and I took him home to my condo. I'm sitting there shooting his stuff something that was probably speed, into my arms, and I've now crossed every line. I know I have AIDS. I know I'm not supposed to be shooting up, and we're sharing a needle now. Would Jesus ever pursue a man like Scott? A drug abuser, an alcoholic, a man who's disrespectful to his own mother, and this is Mother's Day, a man who's a homosexual, and to be clear, the Bible speaks clearly that homosexuality is a sin. Would Jesus ever pursue someone like Scott? Would we? Would you? Would you ever be willing to try to guide Scott to know the areas of his life where he is missing the mark out of love for him and to hold that mirror of the law in front of him to convict him as you come here to be convicted each Sunday. Maybe with a little fear in your step, maybe with a little reluctance saying, am I going to die in this service too? But you come so that you can get to the cross. Would you be willing to take Scott to the cross and to tell him, you know, Jesus... His death on the cross has taken care of your sins too because he died for the whole world. Would you? I'm not going to read it to you today, but whether you would do it or not, whether we as a church would do it or not, and I certainly pray we as a church would do it, 
Jesus did it with this young man. And the rest of the story is how Jesus came after Scott. Did not disqualify him for the prize. And showed him his sin and showed him his grace and mercy and forgiveness. Let's go back to the crosswalk notes. Our point number one, our risen Savior's grace is indiscriminate. It will not disqualify you no matter where you've been or what you've done. How about this one? Next question. Sometimes we think this when we're feeling guilty. Will Jesus' love run out? Ever think that? You know, like, uh, like the old joke about uh, he must have been standing behind the door when they passed out the brains. Right? You ever feel that? Like, I must have been standing behind the door when they passed out the grace. Right? And usually we feel that way when? When there's a bunch of tough stuff going, in our, going on in our life, right? Like, you've been through those weeks... Some of you have been through those months, maybe even those years, where you go, God, was I standing behind the door when you passed out the mercy, forgiveness, and grace? I can't believe you're allowing this much bad stuff to happen to me. Do you still love me? And it's almost like we get a a picture in our mind of of a bucket. And we're standing there before God, right? And saying, God, love me, love me, forgive me. And God's there with a bucket. And he's shaking it. And he's looking inside it. And and going, sorry, dude. Ran out. Can you imagine feeling that? Back to the notes. Look at what it says. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for how many? For how many? For all. Underline that word, circle it, put a star around it. For all. No one excluded. God's love never runs out. Paul says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. See in verse 19, reconciling the what? The whole wide world to himself. Our risen Savior's grace is abundant. Take a look at how Paul puts that. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a a violent, proud, arrogant man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly. Paul says, when I was doing this, I, I didn't know Jesus. I thought I knew who God was. I thought I was pursuing what God wanted. But I had no clue. 
I had no clue. Even though I had no clue, Jesus came after me, grabbed me by the collar, and he said, I've got enough grace for you too, buddy. I've got enough love and forgiveness for you. And then the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Our risen Savior's grace is abundant. Last question about real guilt. Will Jesus ever give up on me? You ever ask yourself that? Picture, um, picture yourself sometimes, right? You got somebody hurting you. They're just kicking you in the shins, right? And you're being good about it. You're being so Christian and kind and loving, right? You forgive them. So they come along and they whop you in the shins again, right? But you're a great Christian. You're filled with love and forgiveness. So you forgive them again and you, you go on and they come and they kick you in the shins again and again and again and again. Jesus' disciples said, how, how many times? Seventy times seven, Jesus said, meaning forever. Forever. And Jesus does that for you and for me. Every time through our sin, we kick him in the shins. And then we look up to him and we say, Jesus, you know, I, I know. I, sh- I shouldn't have kicked you in the shins. I shouldn't have break- broken that first commandment or that fifth commandment or that seventh commandment or that tenth commandment. I'm sorry that I did that. I'm sorry, Jesus. Will you please forgive me? You know what Jesus' answer is every single time? Yes, I forgive you. Yes, I forgive you. Seventy times seven, forever and ever. Take a look at your crosswalk notes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will Christ ever give up on me in his love? What if I have trouble in my life? Or hardship or persecution? What if I'm going through famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Is that a a sign that God has given up on me? Paul answers his own question. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers... Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing is able to separate you from that love. Our risen Savior's grace is persistent. He is going to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming at you with his forgiveness. See what Paul writes? Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the very 
worst. Literally in the Greek, I'm first in line when it comes to sinners. For in that, for, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners. Is Paul convicted? Does he know his sin? Has the law struck his heart? Is he repentant? Absolutely. But through his tears, he looks to Jesus and he says, I know that I have forgiveness. Christ Jesus is displaying his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Six weeks ago, we came here to celebrate an amazing thing. Jesus had died and he had risen again from the grave. And that resurrection, if it does anything, it proves to you that God's love and forgiveness will never die. Just as Jesus died and rose again, Jesus' forgiveness, love, mercy, and grace were carried along by that resurrection and the victory that Jesus experienced on Easter Sunday is your victory today. Your guilt is gone. Your sins are forgiven. Even if you might count yourself with Paul as first in line when it comes to sinners. Let's take a look at the next steps for this week. God's grace is powerful. Surround yourself with God's gracious promises to you and give away your guilt to Jesus. Will you make a commitment to do that? Whatever you're still feeling shamed about, guilty about, whatever's still resting on your heart, it might be from years ago. Let today's message of God's amazing grace cause you, drive you to give your guilt away. Sign up for a growth group on your communication card. We've been making hits on that. You know why? Here's this week's reason. We all need friends who will constantly remind us of God's grace. You know how natural it is to feel guilt? That's the most natural thing in the world. You know what the most unnatural thing in the world is? To believe that you're forgiven. We need friends to remind us of that forgiveness. And finally, meditate on and memorize 1 Timothy 1.14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy. We praise you that even though we are sinners, and we stand first in line right alongside of the Apostle Paul, guilty, Yet you take away our guilt and our shame. Your blood has cleansed us from all our sins. All your righteous acts that that you built up in your entire life now belong to us because you've given them to us in your grace. Lord, help us to wear that robe of righteousness every day as we stand before you and to know that our guilt is gone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.